This is the Colour of Chalk podcast and my guest is Razia Aziz. Good morning. We are right in the centre of the Cookmere Valley. We've walked along mm. from the Cookmere Inn yeah. gate and pub, haven't we? And can you just paint the picture of what kind of day it is and what you see before you? Well, there's a sort of very soft grey blanket descended to not very far above our heads, it feels like. <laughs> but also this kind of in intensifying warmth of the sun at the same time and incredible moisture, um, droplets of moisture in the air and a breeze. With these larks, look, there's one, there it is. Oh, yeah. That one lark yeah. right above our heads just flying through the sun right now. And grasses nodding in the breeze and this uh, I keep wanting to say sedum because this um, ground cover this incredible slightly slightly fleshy it isn't really fleshy but it's got a fleshy effect ground cover so sort of lighty lighter sort of green it looks like the cousin of some kind of seaweed doesn't it, it like the land cousin of yeah seaweed I wonder what it is it's, it's soft soft yeah we found a, a sit spot in a sheltered yes. place, haven't we? Just in a little dip in the valley yeah. to get out of the wind. Yeah. So just a little bit on how we know each other, Razia. I think when we moved to Lewis. Yeah. So that would be 2010. 2010, OK. About 11 years. Yeah, OK. I guess my reference is that you were the first one, or you and Anuja were the first to invite me to a writer's group around your kitchen table. Oh, yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I yeah. thought, oh, do I write in that way? As in, aside from my art practice, do I just write? And that mm. was quite a thing for me. Yes, those were good, those, those mm. sessions. And then I've been kind of involved in some of your programmes. Mm -hmm. So, yes, you came on the, the women's wanderings, as in wandering and wandering, which is based in the nature reserve at uh, in Lewis, railway land, near where Anuja and I live. And uh, those days we organised together for women to come and sort of be in a holding space both of nature and of us where, I don't know, there, there was this, just a sense of wanting to allow what emerged in the day to emerge but with a light kind of structure that enabled people to sort of unfold themselves without any particular objective um, other than that which emerged through them. Yeah, so you came to at least one of those, I think. And then when we decided to run a two-year programme, you were one of the people who um, put your hand up to that mm -hmm. opportunity, yeah. Yes. That's right, the Inside Out, which we're on now. Yes, from the Inside and Out. Also, um, you invited me to be part of your Healing Racism programme. That's right. Oh, gosh. And that was a, a different one. Um, so that conducted with a white colleague and friend, co-facilitator, uh, Jassy. We had this now what looks like a rather naive idea that we could throw people of colour and white people together <laughs> um, with, you know, the best of intentions and a certain amount of skill, actually, with both, which both of us had at the time, and somehow generate good healing conversations about race. And it was much more thorny than I think even we had anticipated. But it was still a, a, a good journey. Um, good journeys are thorny. I think, I think that's part of the 
part of my theme also, I think, for in what I've been writing recently. I think it's interesting that we invited you to our writer's group and then you invited us to yours. That's right. So that comes <laughs> on to, yes, the, that's a kind of true. Perfect yeah. balance. Yeah. Yeah. Over time, everything balances. But yes. it, at any one time, it might look like it's one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. So you came, you and you both came on the first we the see you now. We see you now. Writers retreat, which was due to be out in this area, yes. and of course, with lockdown, went online, and then people went out, didn't they? So that was really nice way to offer that back as <laughs> a space as well. So the first thing I wanted to ask you really was how your upbringing shaped uh, or has formed or influenced your relationship to nature generally. Oh wow! So. I guess some of my early memories are of different landscapes and um, I've always, I don't know about the upbringing side of it, but I certainly know that I've always noticed trees, for example, and the, their different qualities. So being in Lagos, for example, the trees are lush and dark and heavy, like uh, heavy with the sort of the humid air. There's about 90% plus humidity at any one time there. And it's a completely different feeling. And I, one of the first things I remember about coming to live in England, there's lots of other things that were difficult and traumatic, but actually the trees were striking. They were so different to what I was used to. The greens were different. And I remember the horse chestnuts in bloom, particularly because I arrived in uh, beginning of April, 5th of April. And so the first school I went to, when we went out into the sports field, there you see these magnificent blossoms on, on, the, on the horse chestnuts. And I found those things wondrous. Um, my father was also a very great lover of mountains. And this is one of the biggest influences in my life, that we used to go to the Alps virtually every single holiday by car and um, he used to drive up and down the mountain passes and uh, uh, listening to guzzles on the cassette tape recorder in the car. So yes, a, a, love, of, a love of mountains. He's also the one who first took me to the, the Lake District. My parents took me there on a holiday and I instantly fell in love with the Great Langdale Valley. He came from a big shikari hunting, hunting family. So his brothers and his father were all big game hunters and they had this sort of deep pull towards the wild in that sense. But uh, that, that very male trophy-seeking impulse, uh, which kind of translated into fishing later because of course you, you couldn't hunt big, big game in India anymore. But we did have a leopard skin that my uncle I think had shot, which sat and stared at me over my piano uh, when I used to practice for my lessons. There's a whole story behind that. Do you think that's skin. influenced you, that, that you're a vegan now? <laughs> I'm not a vegan, but yes. Yeah. Uh, are you a vegetarian? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I don't really approve of hunting, but that the, the, the things that go with it, which is the love of the outdoors and, you know, the camping and uh, being with nature, shooting with, with cameras instead of guns, does feel like a, there's something, there's some strand in there. Mm. And how would you describe your relationship to the Downs? Because we're right by the coast, aren't we? So yes, you can actually see the beach from here. I've yeah, just noticed you can, you can see yeah. that little sandy strip um, uh, under the horizon there. 
not very far, less than a mile, I think. And Seaford Head is just poking through the mist over there. Yeah, so thinking about arrivals and departures and the fact that you have a heritage from multiple continents, in fact, do you want to just describe that and then talk about how you came into relationship with this area? Oh, yeah, so my biological parents, they, they met when my dad was a doctor and my mum was a medical student. And they got married in... 1954, my mum was the second wife, but uh, she got married without telling her parents. So it was all done under the cloak of secrecy um, and, and left England, uh, left India for England under that same cloak. And so without those two decisions, that, you know, their decision to get married and their decision to leave India at the same time, obviously we wouldn't be sitting here now. So I was ultimately born in England, but in between, my parents had, in addition to the three siblings who were already there from, from my other mum, who stayed in India, there were three other siblings, well four in fact, who had been born and one had died. So I was then the seventh, the last, and by that time my parents had moved continents again from England to Nigeria. Uh, and, I, and I understand that a good portion of that decision was, was due to the lack of prospects for progression as brown-skinned doctors in a white country. The very, very early NHS, you know, 1954, the NHS was only, what, seven years old? And it was easy for them to get jobs, but almost impossible to gain a promotion. Uh, so they, they went for quite well-paid jobs in Nigeria, where there was a, also a racial hierarchy, but where they were sort of, as coming from England, had a certain degree of status and, and respect, but below that of white doctors and above that of black doctors in the classic way of the British colonial system. They lived, I think, in one or two other places. I wasn't born yet, so I don't know the whole story, but we ended up in Lagos and... Although I was born then in England, it was on a, like a sabbatical, it was on a trip to England. And when I was about three months old, speaking of mountains, we went on this amazing family holiday, 11 people in one car. So four adults, so my three parents, my granddad who'd come over from India, and seven children, I was a baby in arms. Peugeot 405 estate, so three rows of seats and a boot and a roof rack on top. Um, and, and drove into the Swiss mountains. We still have photographs. Do that. you? Yes. I'd love to see a photo of that. <laughs> that would be great. So, yeah, my love of mountains started very early and obviously my, my, a lot of my destiny was set by the family I had been born into, this, this family that's, that straddled partition, mm. that straddled continents, and that straddled the fault lines between two unequal marriages. So that's actually absolutely marked me as a person, yeah. Mm. It's funny because we're kind of in between two sides of the, yes, yes, <laughs> of yes. the estuary, aren't we? Yes. Well, yeah. I've often thought that those hierarchies, those inequalities, those fault lines, you know, like the two halves of a valley. But, you know, a valley wouldn't be very beautiful with only one half. <laughs> and with no river running through it, I mean. And there was a real prospect that our family would split at the time my father died. Somehow we managed not to engage in a total partition, you know. 
within your own family within the family mm. yeah because mm. i've i i, I realised when my mum spoke to me in the last few years about her life before she died she she told me that my dad's first marriage to my other mum uh, happened in July 1947 which is actually only one month before actual partition and that our family's story therefore is totally entwined with that story both in terms of the India-Pakistan thing which exists in our family the different religions although my mum wasn't Hindu but she wasn't Muslim when she married my dad she became a Muslim so, you know, we were a little microcosm, uh, and my other mum was Punjabi by origin, but living down in uh, Pune, I think, at the time she got married. So we actually are a microcosm of all of those things that, that, that go on in India mm. um, and Pakistan, and all the kind of multi-faith, multilingual, both the beauty and the diversity and the tensions and the suffering that has come with all of that. Mm. is reflected in our little world. <laughs> the landscape of your family. Absolutely. We, we were talking about where to walk. We were talking about, you know, rivers. And um, I know that this is an, technically an estuary. Yeah. Isn't it? A go, tidal estuary it goes to the sea, but it's the closest. Uh, there's obviously river water there. But, um, yeah, can you speak about your relationship to rivers and, and coastlines and, and why you wanted to, to come here as well? Yes. Well, it's funny, my dad always used to say I love mountains because I grew up by the sea because he grew up in Bombay. I grew up by the sea and, it, you know, I kind of, it's ordinary to me, but mountains are something special. But I think it was his Kashmiri blood, you know, that his, his grand, on his father's side, his grand, paternal grandfather was from Kashmir and he always had that dream of the mountains in his life. So when I moved down to the south coast, I didn't think much of the South Downs. I thought, oh my goodness. You know, I loved the Lake District um, and I loved, you know, drama, dramatic, rugged landscapes and obviously the Alps. Um, but this place grows on you. It just kind of gets inside your bones. And over the many years, I've now lived in this part of the country longer than I've lived anywhere else on the planet. And these hills have become friends, you know. Um, I'm looking at that tree up there because I love the way the windswept trees on these hills actually take on the shape of the wind, uh, like little speech bubbles. <laughs> and the cliffs and this, particularly the Cookmere here and the meanders to the side are, are spaces which have really nurtured me because I guess for me, the, the issues about equality and inequality that have always affected me, ju it's just different with nature. I don't see nature as a thing, by the way. I don't really even like the word. But, but to me, what we call nature is all the non-human living stuff of the planet, which is actually most of what goes on on the planet. <laughs> and, and the beauty of it is not that it that it's without suffering or struggle or contradiction or death or disease. All of those things exist in nature. But it doesn't see the divisions that we see. You know, it's not interested in the colour of my skin or even what gender identity I have or which class background I came from or whether I'm disabled or non-disabled, although obviously there are, there are barriers to... But that's true of everybody, you know, some people can climb mountains and others can't. Some people can walk paths and others um, use their electric wheelchairs. It's, it's not, there's no judgment coming from nature about who we are. 
And so it's always been a, um, a sanctuary for me, particularly trees and rivers, rocks and hills. These things I just love and I always make friends out of them somehow. And so this place has just grown into my bones, I suppose. And um, I, I would find it hard to be without it now. Yeah. As a relative. Yeah, more, you know, it, it's limitless. It, it's like the indigenous peoples uh, all around the world. They talk about, uh, I know in, in the Native Americans talk about all our relations. Mm. And I think that's true of indigenous peoples, at least the ones who have survived. The way I think about it is the ones who didn't have that relationship with nature died out. The ones who survived because were because they had for 10, 20, 40, 40,000 years in the case of the Aborigines, the ability to see all living things as an extension of their family. And that's what our civilization so-called lacks. You know, it's uncivil to all other species and it's not sustainable. We, 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 it, it, we will erase ourselves through that kind of activity. And so although I'm not as green as I would like to be, the fundamental love of the, that connection with all living things is really important to me. Yeah. I think it's time for a poem or a piece of writing. Since my mum passed away um, on my birthday this year, I've felt the need to write, to walk and to write. And the way that I've mostly done that is by getting a subscription to Dragon Anywhere and speaking while I'm walking. Can you explain what that is? So Dragon Anywhere is a, is a, a, um, a piece of software, an app that you can have on your phone, uh, which enables you to uh, get voice-to-text uh, transcriptions of things. It does do some funny things sometimes and gives you completely wild and odd um, interpretations of what it thinks you've said. <laughs> but that could be quite creative, so I've sort of lived with that. And it's not very good in the wind. So <laughs> just a warning to anybody who's trying it. But it's been invaluable for me because I love to speak out loud while I'm walking. It's one of the ways that I write now. Um, so many of these pieces are inspired by the landscape. And the, the landscape in which I'm walking isn't quite exactly this one, but it's very directly connected to this. So it's the same continuous piece of earth, a different river, but uh, one which comes down alongside, um, if you look at it on the map. So this is called the River Rocks, and it's not a finished piece of writing. So, so can you, you just say which river that is? So yeah. the River Ouse that passes through Lewis, which also happens to be the river that Virginia Woolf drowned herself in, which when I'm thinking of writing is actually quite, quite a helpful link to... Um, to both the pain and the, the, um, the, the kind of ecstasies of finding the right word or the right phrase, or not, as the case may be. Um, so this is called the River Rocks. The river is brimful to the grass verges, its muddy banks submerged, serene but never still, dancing in that rippling way rivers do, concealing the undertow that can grab an unsuspecting swimmer and pull them down, muddy water penetrating eyes and ears. Deep below the flow, caressing its progress, shaping its trajectory and being in turn shaped by it, is the riverbed, whose face pack is mud, creatures, roots, clinging in the currents, 
feeding, swimming and melting upon the sand and clay visage, the bedrock. Rock-a-bye baby on the treetop When the wind blows the cradle will rock When the bough breaks the cradle will fall And down will come baby cradle and all My mother would sing to me in her distinctive, somewhat tuneless voice, or rather in a voice that tuned to its own pitch rather than the expectations of others. I can still almost feel her feigning the baby falling with my tiny body in her arms, feeling the negative G-curve of her arms as they dropped through the air. No one sounded like her, spoke like her, whistled like her, lit up with mischief like her. And no one sang lullabies like that. A confluence of inflections, Parsi Gujarati, 1940s Bombay Hindustani, English medium medical school, and years of expatriate life in Nigeria and later in England, wove the undertones, but do not amply describe that voice whose discords and melodies moulded my body through the amniotic medium, the primal bedrock of my sonnet landscape, and will not now be heard again. I miss the way it carried her counsel and her correction her anger now mellowed, her dignity and regality, her moments of childlike fun, her once superwoman, now sweet, funny, generous, sometimes frightened old lady self, and all the other selves she inhabited, her ever-changing, ever-constant soul, my own private story of a mother, along with my long-departed father, the foundation of my world. Summer is coming, and the earth beneath my tread comes in hard waves of cracked clay, bequeathed by the winter as ankle-deep mud, slowly baked in the sun into a solidity that tries the ankles of runners. The next rainfall will prove hazardous to the sturdiest and nimblest of feet. The river ooze runs along, this way, then that, to the command of the tide. Today she breathes in and washes swans inland. She rocks in the cradle of the river channel. They move together, one sparkling into the waiting air, the other imperceptibly deep beneath. When I was a child, she rocked me in her arms on the veranda beneath the coconut palms and banana trees of Ikoyi. When my partner died and I was 33, she was literally my rock, practical and loving, rarely with hugs or shows of affection, but feeding me, making tea, paying my mortgage while I rested from freelance work and walked with a tight, painful, bronchitic chest under the temperate canopy of Scadbury Park. With minimum fuss and maximum efficiency, she helped me face the concrete challenges of widowhood, something she herself had experienced when my father died just seven years before. At the dawn of time, he had been my shield and protection now her love became the single most reliable thing in my life. Unquestionable, unquestioning, unquestioned. Like the moon, it was unwaveringly there, without pomp or circumstance, whether or not it seemed in evidence, connected to my own inner tides. 
I can now see how this love changed with the seasons of our lives. When I was tiny, my mother was my idol of worship, distant, unreachable, majestic, glamorous, beautiful. Wrapped in multicolored saris. Nothing mattered more to me than to win her love in return. But the limited vocabulary of childhood did not permit me to express that except in searching glances and sullen de demeanor. I never seemed to succeed. I was afraid of her. Following the flawless logic of my child mind, I modeled myself on my father, the main object, it seemed to me, of her affection, hoping somehow to attract her attention and approval. It was only much later when I was an adult that I learned to read her distance as a self-protection against the wound of love, whose anatomy she had studied up close when she lost my brother two years before I was born, just a few hours after he was born. Growing up like an only child in Lagos, separated from my siblings in a war-torn country beset with curfews, checkpoints, and soldiers nervously clutching lethal weapons, only amplified the distance between us. By the time I understood all this, the injuries of my early years had already become part of who I understood myself to be, part of my normality. Our difficult beginning was a lesson in love in the real world, unpretty, often broken and deeply flawed like us. It finds a way nevertheless to live. This love grew on me, a dark, leafy creeper with a few surprising delicate flowers and many hidden thorns. I did at time feel its sharpness as I trod, a trait I came to understand as my mother's terror of loving unconditionally for the pain that it might bring. She had swallowed and buried the kernel of fear felt by all mothers for the loss of or harm to their children. It was branded into her DNA and could only have been salved by the permission and safety to grieve openly, fully, madly, completely, a permission she was never afforded. Years later, I would bury the tiny body of a miscarried fetus in the garden at the front of my home in Brighton, water it with tears of love and send it upon its way with prayers for a good passage to its next way station. Now I am a mother myself, and I know both the anger of love and the love of anger that can come with parenting with a limited emotional repertoire. Not all ancestral woundings have to be transmitted to the next generation, but some inevitably are. As I take in the riverscape, a diving cormorant splits the scene. I go down with it into the cool, dark places in search of the bottom. What I find there is not always smooth, not always clearly defined, changes in texture and density, is shaped by the river as well as shaping the movement of the river. Both are changing in constant service of one another, each carving its way through the landscape just as it is carved. The river dreams away from the earth and looks to the sky, the banks, the faces of onlookers, admiring, playing, reflecting, meditating and thinks itself beautiful and important. It is this and more, peaceful, troubled, powerful, as it courses like blood in the veins of the land.
but deep down it knows the bedrock is its very life, always there, the taken for granted that makes everything possible, the arms in which the river rocks. That's beautiful. Beautiful piece. Thank you. Um, yeah, I guess it's very recent, isn't it? The loss of your mother. Yes. So I think about the link with my mother and this coastline. Yes. And the ways that we mark that as well. And she's a bit like your home. I always feel like my mother was a bit like my, my home and I had to sort of re, reconfigure what home was when she died. Mm. Yes, that's true. I, I think this thing about the body, I, I, I guess, you know, our, our mothers and fathers, biologically at least, are our bodies. They, they give us that material. And when I was younger, it was my father very much. I, I had him so much in me um, that I, I felt like I, I moved in the same way as he did and learned to stand like him and laugh like him and dress like him and all of that. And, in, and that kind of movement from the father to the mother, not just because he died, but because as I grew older, I became more like my mother. I had always been thought of as being like my father by everybody. But as I grew older, particularly as I became a mother myself, it's almost like my mother came and inhabited my body. <laughs> and, I, and I can feel both of them. I think the question of home is also interesting because all of my life where my mother has lived has been a reliable home for me. Even when I had my own home, there was always somewhere that was home, that was where she lived. And where I've been writing now is in her flat, where now that she's departed, but I still go there to write, because I know that it won't be long before that's not going to be available to me anymore. And it's all got to be internalized. You know, all of these homes, all of, these, all of this parenting, it's something that we have to bring into ourselves so that we can provide it to ourselves. And so it feels very, there is a ritual for me every week of going around the same point in the week, Thursday or Friday, spending half a day in my mum's flat and always managing to have a cup of tea and something to eat because that's what we always did. Um, biscuits, if there are any. Um, and uh, it feels very at home, yeah, being there. Do you feel that sense when you're out in nature or with nature? Because you've talked about when you're walking and you talk to whoever's around or whatever's around and then eventually tell you your story. I remember you talking about that the other day. Well, it's the, the nature thing, as I said, is something that I don't totally chime with in the right. sense that it's because a lot of the walking I do at the moment is late at night in Lewis. It's in dark town, town streets and there are trees. The trees do feel important. They, they seem to provide a listening. Roads and lampposts don't seem to quite listen in the same way as, as trees. Maybe they just have less living vibration in them. But everything we've created, I believe, is part of nature. You know, because we're part of nature, there isn't anything that we've created that doesn't come from the planet. And because we are creatures of the planet, we are part of the balance and imbalance of nature itself. But yes, the non-human beings are terribly important. 
I think without them, I'd probably go quite mad. <laughs> or madder than I already am, but mad in a bad way rather than in, in the, what I think is a relatively okay, if broken way that I already am. So the more time I spend speaking to other types of beings, I think the, I wouldn't say not the better my writing becomes, I think the more embodied or something it becomes. Mm. Yeah. And um, thinking about mothers and what remains, you know, we brought my mother's ashes, where she was requested to be cast into the sea, for example. Yes. And uh, I was reading a, a really brilliant book called Green Unpleasant Land, which was... Uh, yes, you told me. Yeah, so the relationship of, of the countryside to England's colonial past. and it's But it's through the lens of literature, of diverse literature. And there's a section on rivers and people from, I think it was of, of Hindu faith, and then also Caribbean, who migrated here, taking the ashes of their loved ones down to the rivers in the hope that they'll eventually be carried home. Mm. And um, because rivers connect to the sea and then eventually... And I wondered, yeah, I need to reflect on that. And My partner, my wife, um, uh, her, her um, relatives have... One or two of her relatives who have died have had their ashes cast Scattered. out, yeah. yes, at sea here. Um, off New Haven, you know, from a boat off New Haven. So that thing about going to the sea to to spread ashes uh, is is very much part of our lived experience. And of course, all Indians at one point come from a Hindu origin in some way, shape or form. Um, I don't mean Hindu with a capital H of the kind that the, the state is currently promoting in India but that kind of essential, universal, deeply spiritually rooted cosmic understanding that is now called Hinduism is, you know, there, there before Christianity and Islam and possibly before Zoroastrianism and Judaism, you know, it's been going a long, long time. <laughs> and so these, these acts of cremation and ashes and is kind of somehow in our DNA, whatever religion we come from, from the subcontinent. Very powerful, but yes, very powerful. So I thought we could make our way down further, see how far we can get. To yeah. The... So I, was, I wanted to ask you who you'd like to dedicate this walk to. So I, what I thought about this, so my mother would be the obvious person, but actually when I really asked myself, what do I want to dedicate myself to here? It's more in the zone of what we were talking about earlier, which is that there are many causes I feel passionate about. Some of them are directly mine, like what I was just speaking about, to find a voice for the kind of South Asian, kind of brown, experience and other voices in the the racial landscape um, and you know queerness and gender and all of those things cross-cut that uh, but what I realize is I can never do any of that truthfully unless I stand on both sides of the valley and I, I feel like what I really need to dedicate myself to is to is to all people who are courageous enough to look more than one way at the same time.
And that, that means being courageous enough to recognize one's own shame and guilt about privilege as well as, and also the ways in which one has uh, advertently or inadvertently um, sought to harm others or harmed others. Um, I, I, can't, I need the whole of me to be there on, on that hill, um, whichever side of the valley I'm standing on, and to be able to see. And for me, there's a shamanic quality to this because when I try and understand my life purpose, I, I can't understand it with a, without this shamanic quality, which is the ability to move between worlds and the ability to see, the, see myself from the point of view of that skylark. And see this, uh, and as well as seeing the skylark from where we are here, and it feels, however hard that is to do, that's the real demand of us right now. At least for somebody like me who has enough privilege to sit around and contemplate it, that you know, not at the end of a, you know, not having my children blown up by by uh, air raids in Gaza or, or whatever it is, that actually the gift I can bring with that privilege is the insistence that I look at all ways at all times. I'm not always brave enough to do that. So I'd like to, to dedicate this walk to people who are, who I can learn from. Um, I have in my mind actually the, the, the face of Gabor Mate. I don't know if you know him. Yeah, can you explain he's, that? He's, he's a Hungarian Jew in his 80s now, I think. Um, and apparently, uh, I can't wait to read his psycho psychotherapeutic work on addiction. I mean, he, he seems to have written some marvellous things which I'm yet to read about um, the human psyche. But I, I saw him in a podcast with... Um, oh, what's his name? The guy who does lots of podcasts. <laughs> Russell Brand. Yes, Russell Brand. Um, talking about Israel and Palestine and uh, how he, as a, as a baby who survived the Holocaust um, uh, and had a, had a love for Israel, and how he had to look both ways when, when he visited the occupied territories and saw what the, the Israeli state had done to Palestinians, and that he couldn't stay quiet about that, that he had to speak about it. And he does it in such a, 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 a compassionate and truthful uh, way as if he's able to stand in this impossible ground which is you know to straddle the whole valley um, and I don't know if it's a correct use or it's a misappropriation of the term shamanic but that feels like a shamanic quality to me to be able to to, to step out of your own subjectivity and not you know, and step not, out of it yeah, and not step out time. of it to transcend it yeah. and not transcend it. Because yeah. if you transcend too quickly, you lose everybody and you go into the world of abstraction. That's often mm. been a problem with my um, non-fiction writing. And I'm really trying to stay grounded and transcendent at the same time and uh, to speak from all sides. Because, mm. because I, I guess coloniality has taught us this very... Um, pol polarized way of thinking and this very uh, disembodied way of thinking and actually we need to find new language to um, who was it in our writing group who was always stressing that we've got to weave 
out of the earth and our experience, like a completely new way of speaking truth that is neither totally beholden to very conventional scientific ideals, nor to very high intellectual ones, nor to the, the kind of the canon of the, the poetic, you know, this is how poetry is done, or this is how novels are written, but something that's in those in-between spaces that doesn't have a name. Yeah, the new worlds, creating new worlds from that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, let's walk and look both ways whilst keeping our eyes on the path, which means three ways. Yeah, yes. (laughs) And aware below and aware above. Oh, yeah, that's panoptical. Isn't that the word? Let's let's walk panoptically. Okay. (laughs) So you've known this uh, estuary when it was less of an issue to cross over. Yes. Yes, yes. Well, well, yes before done, it was rerouted slightly. They've rerouted it yeah. slightly. Yeah. Um, but it's still possible. At left. Well, yeah. it was the last time, I guess. Yeah, I've seen possible. people cross. Yeah, no, I love these stones. They're, they're very beautiful. Um, and, and in one of the pieces I'm writing, there's something about lifting up, you know, having the courage to lift up, lift up a stone and see what's underneath. And then you notice that there's a whole bloody beach of them. And <laughs> so what else are you going to find out about yourself that you didn't want to know? Way too much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also these colours, they're, they're very mm. iconic, describe aren't they? The, describe the colours So you've today. got this... You've got this far slate grey of the of the sea to the horizon, and the other layers of grey of the um, of the clouds above. But that 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 dif- and then closer closer into the beach, there's there's this lovely aqua chalky aqua colour um, that, that that then sort of laps up to to these pebbles, which are just a mixture. I mean, what are they? I'm just looking closer at them now. They're, they're white, they're gray, they're flint, they're chalk, they're terracotta, they're buff. Um, and they just don't have to do anything to look really quite artistic. <laughs> yes. It is very variable, isn't it? The colors it is, the it is. Drift. There are some, I well, think, but, like but the terracotta yes. is a little bit... Oh, yes. Um, the waves of terracotta. Yes. The by the water. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, that pro- provides yeah. that kind of redness, which would otherwise be missing in the landscape. Yeah, yeah. Because then you've got that stunning rise of the, of the cliff and, and the green fringing grass at the top. Mm. Um, it's like some kind of... Uh, Postmodern haircut. <laughs> I love that. Going up the cliff. Yeah. Marvellous. And to think that these cliffs are changing shape all the time. Is there anything else you want to say? The point for me of what I was talking about earlier that position of being in many places at once is not to be relative, it's to say, is to see more accurately how that is happening and to name it. And For I, example, I, give me an example. In a lot of the work I'm doing at the moment around racism, it's essentially about white people who are troubled or shamed or moved or 
motivated by what is happening in the world, wanting to do something about it. And what I see by standing in their skin is the muddiness of not quite seeing clearly the real motivation for wanting to do that. And I think a, 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 a detached but, but a compassionate gaze into that muddiness. I'm looking at the water actually and it's got that kind of chalkiness about it and you can't see clearly to the bottom. Is, is to uncover the fact that, that racialized trauma doesn't just happen to black and brown bodies. That, that underneath the, the kind of lid of shame and, and anger and defensiveness is actually a tr the trauma of inflicting injury, which many, many white people have inherited, even if they haven't themselves deliberately engaged in that inflicting of injury. And, and actually coming face to face with that is a holy work. It's, it's, it's holy work that needs to happen. And if I only stood on the side of my brownness, or if I only stood in solidarity with black people, um, and didn't see the landscape from the other side of the valley, I wouldn't be able to call that in or call that out. To understand that racism harms everybody and every living thing is, is just, just, just as patriarchy does. And that, that, they, that they need each other, they feed each other. Not to see that is to, is to make real this kind of fractured and polarized reality that we've been born into. And it, and it isn't real. The reality is, you know, under that chalky water is all sorts of life wanting to, to live. And that's what we are all trying to do. And, and I think until from whatever the privileged or oppressor or whatever side of the valley is, until you can really feel that in your bones, the healing is not possible. Not just for you, but actually a whole healing for even those who experience the oppression is not really possible. Yeah. Beautifully articulated. Thank you. That's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to to have these conversations in the landscape, not just talk about, you know, to be immersed in it and embodied yes. in it. No, it's super. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's a, bit, a lovely it's a way to spend a Friday. Yeah, it's really lovely, isn't it?